Hi, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and we're coming to you live from the RVN Television Studios. Welcome to the show where we dig deeper to understand what matters most in business. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Kevin Herring, who's the president and founder of Ascent Management Consulting. Kevin, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Now, it's a pleasure. I want to set the stage for the audience. You're a recognized expert in team and business unit turnarounds, and you're also the creator of something called the 90-day turnaround. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your background and what is this 90-day turnaround? Yeah, my, my background is mainly in organizational behavior, organization effectiveness, and uh, spent a lot of time uh, leading HR departments, but also working on productivity improvement in organizations and had the opportunity to work in a large transformation with a magma copper company years ago as a showcase organization and eventually went off on my own with uh, some others and decided to help organizations to basically turn around their performance and uh, do it in, a, in an expeditious fashion so that we could boost their, their productivity, their profitability by creating an engaging workplace, a place where people can really thrive and produce at high levels. Yeah, well, you know, you're preaching to the choir on that one, so yeah. we'd love to get into it with you. And I want to start by asking you about motivation. Um, yeah. How, how do we motivate people? And can people really be motiva motivated by external factors? That's a great question. You know, we talk a lot about motivating other people, that that's a responsibility of leadership. And I like to ask people in the first place, do you need to be motivated? And nobody says, I need to be motivated. They always say, no, others need to be motivated. Um, and so we have this notion that people are kind of objects to be moved. And, uh, and, and so when we try to motivate people, basically what we're doing is manipulating them. We're taking Taylorism at its finest and, and dropping the boot or the stick, as he used to say, and substituting just the carrot side of the equation. And when we talk about motivating, people talk about trying to find the right extrinsic motivator for each individual. And there's this labyrinth of motivators that have to be navigated. And if you have 50 people on your team, you've got 50 different motivators you've got to figure out and put those in front of people all the time. It's, it's just unsustainable and it's ineffective. And so the question is, what's motivation really about? And if we recognize that when we're trying to motivate people, we're manipulating and we realize that we're never going to get high commitment and high engagement from people that way. Can you really motivate people? Not intrinsically, you can't. Everybody has their own intrinsic motivators, which are pretty consistent across individuals and generations, interestingly enough. But when we recognize that people bring their inherent desires to contribute, to perform and to accomplish something, something of meaning and purpose for them each day at work, we recognize that all we really need to do is tap that desire and enable people to be able to act on their own intrinsic motivation. That's where we really get high commitment, high accountability, high performance. Yes, I think you've said um, in, in other interviews that pretty much everything we've ever been taught about motivating people is wrong. Yeah, it is, because it's the notion that if we, if we connect the right wire with the right neurotransmitter, we'll get high performance. 
right? It's and it's it's totally manipulative. It's not effective, and it tends to breed cynicism and at best compliance behavior from people. It gets people sometimes to do a narrow set of tasks or or perform at some minimal level. It doesn't enable people to bring their their full selves to the situation and really perform at the highest levels. And, and that only happens with intrinsic motivation. So what's what's the hack? What's the what's the tip? What's the actionable piece of advice here for folks who are watching and listening on how they can perhaps get to that intrinsic motivator? Yeah, people are motivated by some very basic factors. And um, those are things that occur in the system, the system that they work in when they come to work each day. And so what we try to do is help people create that system that's most effective in tapping those intrinsic motivators. So uh, there are a number of things that help people. A couple of key ones are context and connection. People need to, when they come to work, need to understand why it's important for them to be at work, what it is that they're supposed to accomplish and how they fit into the bigger picture. So understanding why I'm at work, what is this business about? What do we produce? It's amazing how many organizations I go into and people don't even know what the end product is. It's, it's just ridiculous. So people go to work with blinders on. And if you liken that to a professional sports business, and that is a business, sports teams are a business. And you think, what do those players have? What do those employees have when they come to work each day? They have standings. They understand where the teams stack up. They understand what their strengths and weaknesses. They understand who the competition is and how they relate to that and what they need to do to beat that competition. They have a game plan. Every time they will go into a game, they have the big picture as to what needs to be accomplished on the field that day. Uh, and so they know what they need to do to help when a, when a play is broken, they know what they need to do to, to um, make it successful. So if there's a bouncing ball on the field, they know that they, they don't just hope somebody picks it up. <laughs> they understand what needs to be done and they can take action. So yeah. creating that environment at work is critical, helping people understand why they're there and what needs to be accomplished. Yeah, the, the why they're there and what needs to be accomplished is, is a recurring theme. I, I've heard that so many times on the show and through uh, conversations with clients and folks I've interviewed for my books and so forth. And it is the theme. It's, it's getting people to understand that what they're doing is more than just the task at hand. They need to understand that bigger picture so that maybe you can create that buy-in. Um, where does accountability fit into this whole picture? Yeah, so one of the, so I mentioned context and connection, and, and let, me, let me talk about where accountability fits into that. So connection is how what people do fit, how what people do fit, fits in with the bigger picture. In other words, how does my work impact that, that uh, success of the whole? And so, how can I be accountable for that if I don't really know what the big picture is and how I impact it? So what we ask people to do is look, figure out how each of you impacts the larger organization, how you impact each other on the team and how your team impacts other teams. There's a, there's a important piece there where if I understand what everyone else 
needs for me or how they're impacted by me, I can make adjustments as to, into what I do to help them to succeed and contribute at a higher level. And pretty soon we have an accountability, not just for the narrow set of tax, tasks we get assigned each day, but we have accountability for the success of others and the success of the team overall. That's a, that's a critical piece. Now, accountability, in fact, I was gonna mention, you know, we have a great tool for helping people to uh, develop that connection piece inside their organization, helping people really get to understand what each other does and needs from each other. It's very powerful for, for building accountability and, and higher performance and integration of team members on the team. But the other piece of that is you talked about accountability. What we tend to do is talk about holding people accountable. And the question is, first of all, can you really hold somebody accountable? Because what happens when you try to hold somebody accountable? Well, the first thing that happens is, you know, we, we do what HR folks often encourage us to do, and that is to clarify expectations and hold them accountable, meaning sit down and pressure them into working harder or doing more or doing something they're not doing. We check up on them. We basically micromanage them. And when we do that, who is now accountable? We've basically communicated that you're no longer accountable. I'm accountable because I'm the one who's gonna check up on you. I'm the one who's going to make sure things get done. Now I'm accountable. I've taken that away from you. You're just an object to be moved here. I'm gonna take responsibility. So what happens is people then may be compliant because they need to keep their jobs, but there's no commitment there. There's no chosen accountability. People aren't choosing to be accountable for the success of the business. They're being held accountable, meaning other people have taken the accountability away and are simply using them as pawns to get things done. They're a pair of hands now for the people who truly have accepted accountability. Totally ineffective. You can never have a high performing team in an organization where people are being held accountable as opposed to committing and choosing accountability for the success of the business. Yeah, and that is a real subtle, but so important point that you just made there. Kevin, for folks who are watching, listening, if they wanna learn more about you or the 90-day turnaround, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, best way, go to the website, AscentMGT, which is short for management, AscentManagement.com. And, uh, uh, you know, we have, like I said, that tool will be great for people. They can pick that up there. Actually, if they go to ascentmanagement.com, uh, five steps to higher productivity, that will get them that tool and, um, and they can access all the learning pieces and other opportunities to uh, further understand what we do with the 90-day turnaround to help people gain higher commitment, higher engagement, and higher productivity. Sounds good. And on that note, Kevin, we're going to uh, hit the pause button here and pay a few bills. Uh, don't go anywhere, Kevin. We'll come back to you and you watching and listening. Sit tight. We'll be right back on Behind the Numbers after this quick break. Hi, I'm Bob Hokertle from Kings Road Brewing Company. I'm here to tell you about a brand new show on RVN television called Cooking with the King. Each week, we're going to taste and sample some of the best beers the Kings Road Brewing Company has to offer. And we're gonna to talk to area chefs and restaurant owners as we pair our beer with their signature dishes. We're going to teach you how to cook and eat like a king. Cheers. 
A stroke can be easy to detect. A loved one can't speak, perhaps they can't move. But there's another sign of a stroke that many of us can't see. It's called spatial neglect, and it can occur during or after a stroke causing distorted visual movements. Fortunately, there's a solution by using optical prism technology during rehabilitation. If you or a loved one have experienced a stroke, ask your doctor about spatial neglect. Spatial neglect. See the whole picture at KesslerFoundation.org. And welcome back, everybody. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and we're talking with Kevin Herring today, who's the president and founder of Ascent Management Consulting. Kevin, welcome back to round two. I'm behind the numbers here. As I mentioned to you during the commercial break, it goes so fast here. Um, I want to start off the second segment by uh, calling out a video that I, I, I've seen you uh, produce, which I thought was really fascinating, where you talk about taking a stance on employees. And you gave a great example of what that means, and I would love for you to share that with our audience. Sure. So one of the things that we find holds managers back, probably more than anything else, is their stance about employees. And what I mean by that is, is when I get a group of people together, a group of managers, and I ask them, how do you feel about your employees? Do you feel like you can trust them? Uh, do you feel like they're dependable? Are they self-motivated? Um, and, and, and I've given an example of where uh, we give the, the employees a certain amount of money to be able to satisfy a customer uh, need or a problem, um, you know, would you be willing to give them that kind of control? And I have employees, sometimes, or managers sometimes get so excited or exercised over this notion of giving them more control over, you know, money and, and, uh, and ways to satisfy the customer need that they jump out of their chairs. They say, no, I can never do that. They go broke. They give everything away. And, and, uh, and so their stance is basically that people are not trustworthy. They can't trust people to do a great job. They have to control everything. They have to manage everything very tightly. On the other hand, we have people, we have managers who will say, no, my people are generally pretty reliable. They're pretty dependable. I trust them. I'd be happy to give them access to more resources to be able to serve the customer. No problem at all. And so what's the difference? Um, generally, the, the groups are split about 50-50, half take a stance of, of what we call high control and, and low trust, and, and others take a stance of low control and high trust. Um, and that makes a huge difference in the system or the environment that we create for employees to work in. So if, you're a, if you have a stance that people are uh, generally untrustworthy and you have to watch them, check up on them, micromanage them, and that sort of thing, you're never going to have a high-performing team. And you won't simply because you'll never let go of enough uh, of, of, of the controls uh, for the decision-making, for access and control of the resources and things that they need to be able to truly use their expertise. And um, what they know will really benefit the customer. <clears throat> yeah, and that, that's if a... You, right? I mean, that, that's sort of a critical factor for everything else. It's the foundation. The stance drives employ or management behavior to create the kind of environment people work in. Yeah, and that's a, a wonderful perspective. And as I hear it, and I think, like, what's driving this stance? And you start to get into psychology of, is it control, mm -hmm. as you point out? Is it fear? Is it lack of trust? And it's 
probably a combination of all of those things, and I'll let you react in just a second, but I just want to say one more thing on this, that when we think about employee engagement, everybody who's been on the show and everyone that I've talked to who's implemented culture change to drive engagement, we all talk about it starts from the top, right? Every, and then it's got to go down the food chain and people in each regional office, local office, et cetera, has to drink the proverbial Kool-Aid and lead that sort of culture. So it, it tends to fall apart as you come down lower into the org chart where managers are, are tending to, as you would say, quash the engagement. And this stance seems to be one aspect of how that happens. So I guess in all of this, Kevin, is two questions. What, what's underpinning this stance and how can we get these managers to be a little bit more enlightened and open to creating a more uh, positive environment for driving engagement? Right. So, so people. So you're right. I mean, our life, work, experience, um, our, uh, you know, how we grew up, the culture, uh, family life. I mean, there are a lot of things that impact our beliefs about others. Uh, but quite often, it's as simple as I had a boss who worked a certain way and that's how I learned to work. As a, so when I became a manager, I did what my manager used to do. Um, and the problem with it is it, we develop a set of beliefs about people and those beliefs such as people are undependable, untrustworthy, lazy, that sort of thing, sort of the Frederick Taylor model, uh, that drives our intentions. Uh, about what we need to do with our people. So if I believe people are untrustworthy, then my intention is to not give them anything of high responsibility that I can't control tightly. And that, and that then translates into management practices of high control, like checking up on people, micromanaging, giving them narrow sets of assignments and following up and not giving them the big picture, controlling information so that I can give them what I think they need to know. Um, and, and, and so if my stance is the opposite of that, it, it creates a totally different environment, right? It, because my intention is now to enable people to be able to fully contribute, to have all the information they need to have, to have all the resources and uh, support they need to be successful. And so now I'm willing to share information. I'm transparent, I'm authentic in, in what I communicate. I try to make sure I transfer what I know and what I understand to them so that they can take that information and, and contribute at a higher level. Um, I, I try to let go of decision-making. I try to share that uh, control with them so that they can control the work themselves. That's, that's a, that, that, that creates a totally different way of managing people and leading them. Yeah, and, and before we go any deeper into some of the, uh, the aspects of this, I want to shift to quickly here to results, because whenever we're having a conversation like this, when I'm talking to guests and we're talking about uh, things like culture and, and engagement and the, the softer sides of, of business, if you will, there's, there's generally not a KPI associated with that, but there are returns that get manifested. There is a real benefit to doing this, and I'd like to get your um, perspective on that. What have you seen, Kevin? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are organizations like Gallup that do studies and they say profitability is higher in highly engaged companies. I think it's 21% or something like that, higher average profitability. And, and they have a whole lot of numbers around that. Our experience is that when we work with 
with teams that really turn around and create a, a high engagement uh, workplace that their numbers increase dramatically. We, we often see productivity is doubled. 20% um, is minimal in terms of the improvement that we see. Uh, it's, it's usually closer to 50% and, and often 100% uh, improvement. So it's pretty dramatic, uh, absolutely. There's so much left on the table in low engagement organizations. It's, it's just remarkable. And I always tell people, productivity is free. Remember the book years ago, Quality is Free? Productivity is free too. It's really all about how we lead people and the environment we create for them to work in. Yeah, and that greater productivity leads to greater profitability. And as I always like to say at the end of the sentence, all other things equal greater business valuation, which is what I do for Absolutely. a living. So that, those Absolutely. are the dots that I've been connecting for the last seven years. Um, one of the things that's constant in business, Kevin, is change. And I know you've worked with a lot of organizations as they're going through either a, a self-directed change or something that was thrust upon them externally. What are companies getting wrong as they're going through change? And most, most organizations take an engineering approach to change where they want to, they want to go into the organization and install a change as if it's some part that goes into a machine and think that somehow that works. And so it's this, the sponsor agent target sort of model. And, um, and the sponsor is the big name that we use to, uh, that we leverage to get cooperation from people, but it's really doing something to people. And whenever people have something done to them, there's a natural tendency to resist. And I, I, I can share just a, a quick example of that. I was working with a, with a company in the Midwest, uh, brought in a, a new software system, uh, enterprise uh, system that they installed, and they had a lot of pushback from end users, said that this thing is not not adequate, it doesn't work, it's broken, it's ineffective, doesn't do what we need. And there was just a, a mutiny. And they asked me, what did we do wrong? And I asked them what their process was. And they talked about how they kind of went through the chain from the top down to eventually to the end users, but they really didn't involve end users in any of the decision-making. And, uh, and so I suggested, well, what would have happened had you brought in the end users on the front end of that discussion? and let them have some input. And they said, you know how much that would cost? We flew people all over the country, brought them into a place and housed them for a day. And I said, ah, probably some big number, let's figure it out. And we calculated a, you know, some estimate of what the cost would be. And I said, how does that compare to the millions you just spent on this system and you're getting nothing from it? <laughs> and uh, I said, now I'm not suggesting you do that for every major decision. All I'm suggesting is you're missing a big piece. And that is that nobody likes things to be done to them it elicits resistance. But if you instead enable them to co-create the change at some level, and maybe they don't make the decision, but maybe they're more involved in, in, in creating the uh, implementation plan. You know, how is this going to be executed? You get them involved and let them uh, participate in making the thing work. Uh, how much more committed would they be? And so I help them understand that, that if you want to uh, bypass that, that resistance, that natural resistance that we see when things are done to people, then you have to involve people and help them to be co-creators in the change. Yeah, let me say one other thing about that. When, 
whenever we try to, to create a change in organization, and particularly the bigger the change, the, the more it tends to take people out of their comfort zones. So as discomfort increases, the pain increases, the likelihood of resistance and the level of resistance increases. And what we find is that organizations often see resistance as a bad thing. They wanna squash it. Uh, they wanna eliminate any conflict. And uh, instead, of, instead of addressing that, they push against it and they push harder to sort of force the change on people. In other words, doing something to people again. And what we find is that it's better to embrace the, the conflict. You know, let you want that to come out early on. You want people to tell you what the pain points are because those are the things you, you're going to have to address if you want the change to be successful. Great example is Apple computers, trying to bring everybody back into the organization, into the office to take advantage of that incredible facility they have that supports natural collaboration, which is their competitive advantage. It, you know, the expertise that comes out of that collaboration of highly intelligent, highly skilled engineers. People resisted. There was a mutiny. There was a whole group of people who signed a document saying they weren't coming back. Hmm. Well, what was missing there was, were a couple of things. One is a lack of understanding of the big picture and how, how um, the competitive advantage occurs because of the ability to, to have that kind of collaboration. So that's one piece that was missing. But the other is simply finding out early on what those pain points were and in involving people in co-creating that change, enabling them to be part of the conversation early on. And they would have, could have avoided a lot of that resistance. Yep. So much in that statement that you just shared with us that I would love to unpack further, but unfortunately we are out of time. Kevin, hopefully maybe you'll come back on the show uh, another time and we'll continue this thread. But uh, that's yeah, all for today. To. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's a pleasure. We've been talking with Kevin Herring today, president and founder of Ascent Management Consulting. And again, my name is Dave Bookbinder and my clients turn to me when they want to know what their most important assets are worth. I want to thank Patrick back in the studio uh, in the production room for making this show run smoothly as it always does. And thank you out there for watching and listening. Really appreciate it. We can't do this show without you. Please crush that subscribe button. Stay in touch with all that we're up to. We typically drop a new episode every week. And that's all we have for today, folks. Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want to have a conversation. Until next time, take care.